Good evening, guys. Thanks for braving the weather and uh, making it out here to encounter. Um, for those online, hope you're enjoying the warm, uh, warm inside of your home, and we're excited to join together tonight. Uh, tonight's lesson is going to look a little bit different, so we are not going to start with a time of Q&A. Um, for those of you that uh, attend PV or maybe watched online, this last weekend in service, you heard an announcement about a week of prayer. And uh, just knowing the schedule of encounter, we wanted to support that, but at the same time knew we couldn't miss an entire lesson of encounter because of the strenuous schedule. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to honor that week of prayer for our nation that Pleasant Valley is taking a part of. And so this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to begin in a time of prayer. I'm going to lead us in an extended prayer and meditation. And then you're going to have a moment to pray together just with the folks around you. Make sure you know their names, get to know them. If you're online, pray with your friends and family that you're with. Or if you're by yourself, pray alone just for God's help. And uh, so I'll lead us in that time of prayer. We'll, we'll have some group prayer, and then we're going to begin with Andy teaching after that. And the passage that is guiding our time of prayer this week for Pleasant Valley is this. It's 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. It says this. First of all, then, I urge you that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may be able to lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. And that passage is going to lead our time together each night this week. And so this evening, many of you are in here in encounter, but we pray that you would join the week of prayer. It's going to be in the chapel, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. each evening this week. And we're going to break down that passage together and take time to pray together. But let me lead us off in a time of prayer. We'll go into group prayer, and then Andy's going to teach after that. Let's pray. God, you are sovereign over all things. And you rule as king over all reality. When you look over every single square inch of reality, you declare mine. There is not one moment of time, one atom of the universe, one leaf that falls, one hair on our head, one centimeter of the earth, or one action that we commit that you aren't ruling over. You created the world, and it all belongs to you. You alone possess all authority. Just as Jesus said to Pilate, the only authority any of us have comes from you and is subservient to you. God, we confess and we recognize those glorious truths about your sovereignty as we are in a contentious time in our nation with an upcoming election. As we focus on the authority of our nation, who will be president for the next four years, we do so with a clear recognition that whoever sits in the Oval Office does not rule over you. They are subservient to your plans and your mission. You are reigning now and the election of a president does not impact that whatsoever. The sun rises at your beckoning not based on who sits in the Oval Office. But, God, you tell us to pray for those in authority, and we seek to do so now. Father, we pray for President Trump. Be with him in this contentious time. Give him wisdom as he is faced with large and difficult decisions. Sustain his health and his stamina. We pray that he would lead with dignity and respect that honors you. Walk alongside him in these difficult days. God, we also pray for Vice President Biden. Be with him as he campaigns. We pray for his strength and his stamina. Give him wisdom as he steps and help him honor you with each and every action as he leads and heads into a really difficult and strenuous time. Can we also pray for the families of all those running for election. Be with them as they endure a great deal of animosity and anger. Help the candidates love their families well and care for them in this intense and exhausting season. Father, we pray for the souls of President Trump and Vice President Biden. May they both come to know you. May they confess their sins and trust in the saving power of Jesus. 
May they come to worship you, the one true living God. May they exalt Jesus and commit to walking with you forever. God, help us never to get to a place where we have such contempt for a candidate that we forget to pray for their salvation and their walk with you. May both candidates come to faith in you by the power of your spirit. God, we pray that the candidates and the policies that follow from this election would protect life, not as determined by party lines, but as the commands and priorities of scripture guide them. God, protect the unborn, protect the immigrant, protect the needy, protect the elderly, protect the disabled, and protect the family. You have fearfully and wonderfully made each and every individual, and we pray that your image in them would be recognized throughout the government and her laws. God, help us remember that we are exiles. This country is not our home. We thank you for the ways that you've used America in your mighty providence, and we pray for her health and her safety and her innovation and her leadership. But ultimately, we look forward to the day where we can dwell in our heavenly home, a home of perfect peace and no elections because you will reign supreme and alone forever, a home where we will be able to perfectly glorify and enjoy you forever. Father, help us retain our witness in the season of animosity. May our words and our social media posts, our conversations with friends and strangers have the hints of the tenderness and compassion of Jesus. Our faith is more important than our political party or candidate of preference. Help us remember that. When America is a footnote in history, Jesus will remain while our parties and candidates will not. Help us keep the gospel before us and let it fuel us to speak and post with gentleness and respect. God, we thank you for the privilege to be able to gather here tonight without fear of persecution. Thank you for the men and women who have given their lives to secure that freedom. Help us not take that for granted. Be with the Christians in other nations who cannot gather in peace as we can. Be with the Christians in other nations who are severely persecuted, who are so persecuted that they are led to their, their prayer gatherings with blindfolds. They meet in underground rooms with just fear of being shot or taken out at any moment. Bless their attempts to gather in your name. And thank you again that we can join together here tonight. God, we close by thanking you for your word. As we prepare to study it tonight, we are reminded that your word helps us remember that you are in control. You reign supreme. You are sovereign. God, no matter what happens in the coming days, we can trust you. Thank you for sending your son to die to secure for us the ultimate freedom and the ultimate gift, a relationship with you. And God, we look forward to the day where we can join together in glory to praise your name and gaze upon your face in perfect peace and holiness and delight. That we will sing of the sacrifice and victory of Jesus as we praise his name forever. It is in his mighty name we pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Now take just a brief moment. Grab three to four people around you. Make sure you know their names. I want to just encourage you, just pray for our nation and pray for Christians at this time. We're going to take three to five minutes to do so, same online, and then Andy's going to come up and teach in just a moment. I want to thank all of you for uh, being here tonight, uh, for those of you here for braving the first snowfall, and for those of you online, uh, welcome. So what we're going to do, I want to make sure that we're able to discuss um, Mark a little bit, if for no other reason than last week I was beside myself wanting to 
uh, begin talking about the nature of the kingdom of God in the gospel of Mark. Um, so what I'll do is I'll go through the guiding questions and uh, try to, to weave and reference a few of the, the, the feedback comments that uh, those of you had on the forms, um, but kind of just focus through, through the gospel of Mark. One of the things I have to say, as we read your form questions, I know we don't get to everything, and a lot of you are asking really good, really specific questions, um, and I'm not always answering them. Sometimes that's intentional because there aren't always answers. Um, in fact, one of the things that um, Gordon Fee and uh, Doug Stewart, who wrote the, the book, How to Read the Bible, book by book, and uh, its prequel, um, How to Read uh, the Bible for All It's Worth, one of the things that they say is that one of the keys to being a good reader of Scripture is not always finding answers, but it's learning to ask the right questions. And, and on the forms, you guys are asking the right questions. And sometimes when you ask the right questions, you don't have answers. Um, but hopefully as we go through, we'll, we'll reference a few of those things. Um, one other thing too, at the end of the encounter manual, there are a series of um, additional helps, some commentary sets that are, are good, um, some Old Testament, New Testament introductions. Those are good next steps. Um, after you go through a, a class like this and you kind of have a good introduction to, to Scripture and to some of the main genres, to really begin looking a little deeper at some of the questions or the interpretive issues in, in a book. Um, so we gave you some, some resources there. Um, do they cost money? Yes, they do. Um, but there, there's a proverb that one of my seminary professors uh, gave uh, us years ago when we were talking about um, the cost of buying books for for seminary or for if you've been to graduate school in any any uh, field, you know the extreme cost of of uh, textbooks. And there's a there's a proverb that says, um, "With no oxen, the stall is clean, but from the strength of the ox comes an abundant harvest." And the the idea is that there is an investment. Um, and it costs you. You know, if you have an ox, you have to feed it. You have to clean up after it. You, I mean, it's, there's an investment. Buying books to help study the Bible is an investment, um, but it's a worthwhile one. Just like having an ox, if you're, you know, we're a farmer in, in uh, pre-John Deere days, having an ox was a way to have an abundant harvest. And so we encourage you that this class and, and your discussions and readings aren't the end, but the beginning um, or the continuation of your study. So that's just kind of a side note to um, say, I can't answer all your questions and I'm sorry. Um, but I find too, after a while, that nobody can answer all of, all of our questions. But I can't answer the questions that I gave you. So I'm going <laughs> to gonna do that <laughs> at the very least. Um, so in, in the guiding questions uh, with regard to the gospel of Mark, the first question, how does Mark's gospel indicate a largely Gentile audience? One of the things that you need to be become proficient at as you read is to catch things that tell you something about the nature of the author and the audience and the relationship between them. So if you remember when we discussed the book of Ruth, we said that in Ruth, the author and the audience were not written, it was not written at that exact time. Because at the beginning of the book, the author says, in the days of the judges or in the time of the judges 
which indicates that that wasn't part of that time. And also he explains the sandal. Remember, the, the, he said he gave him the sandal and he said, well, in former days in Israel, this is what happened. Those are little clues that help us to know, okay, the author and the audience are not from that exact time period. Now, with the Gospel of Mark, Mark was one of the earlier books written, especially of, of the Gospels, but it still was not written to a primarily Jewish audience. And one of the big clues that we have is that Mark explains in some detail, which for Mark is, is noteworthy because he really gives you quite an action-packed, very quick-moving um, story, but he explains the Jewish rituals for hand-washing. He explains that they wash tables and pots and pans and all of these other things. There are clues in the text where you begin to realize, okay, he's not talking to a Jewish audience. He translates Aramaic into Greek. He says, little girl, he says, you know, talithakum, which means little girl, get up. And you begin to see, okay, so it's a, it's a non-Jewish audience that he's talking to. He does not quote the Old Testament near to the degree that Matthew does. Matthew is written toward much more of a Jewish audience. So that becomes important um, in, in a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about that. But we need to understand that there are clues within Mark itself and within most of the books of Scripture that give us little hints as to who the audience is. And for our purposes, that's very important because, remember, we want to understand what did the author mean to the original audience. And then we understand what it meant to them, so then we can understand what it means for us today. Number two, in what ways does Mark highlight the suffering servant nature of Jesus' messiahship? He quotes Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah in the context of Jesus' messianic nature. What's important about this, and one of the ways that Mark highlights this, is that Jesus' ministry, his, his messiahship was secret, a couple of you in, in your, your forms, you asked the question, why did Jesus do things secretly? Why did he tell the parables to just a few people? And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about parables next week. But Jesus' messiahship, his true nature was a secret. And so he would tell people constantly, he would heal someone. And then what would he say to the people when he healed them? Don't go tell anyone. You're like, are you kidding so in, in our current political climate, if there was someone campaigning for office, what, what, do, what is their goal? To tell everybody, to be known, right? If Jesus were running for political office, he would say, let's get the cameras in here, let's heal this person, and then we're going to live stream it, and we're going to do all this. That, that's how political office is attained. Jesus went the opposite direction. He was telling people who it was just impossible. I mean, how do, you not, how do you not tell someone, I was blind and now I see, or I was a leper and I've been healed? But the reason, the reason for that and the reason Mark highlights that is because we need to understand that Jesus' messiahship was not what the people understood it to be, and it was not what any other political character in history has, has tried to do. Jesus' messiahship was about suffering and about service. 
And so Mark highlights that by quoting Isaiah, by this secret nature of things, by constantly downplaying and going away. Anytime there was a crowd, and you notice this in in all four of the gospels, but Jesus is constantly, something big happens, and then Jesus says, the son of man is going to be betrayed and crucified. And you're just like, when you read Mark, you're almost, you almost have whiplash. Like you're going back and forth and back and forth and what is going on? And it's confusing. But part of the reason for that is because Mark is painting a picture of a Messiah, of a political and national leader who is unlike anything the Jews expected. And in the context of speaking to a Gentile audience, he is not a Roman governor. He is not a Caesar. He is not a general or anything that they would expect. In what ways does Mark cite and or echo Isaiah? We talked about that, uh, that a little bit in the suffering servant um, nature of, of the gospel. But one of the other things, and um, uh, Fee points this out in the chapter, he says that Jesus, um, the, when I, Isaiah quotes, or, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought, sorry, I'll start over. Mark references Isaiah in when, he's, when Jesus is talking about the Gentile inclusion in the kingdom of God. So at the very beginning of Isaiah, uh, of Mark, he talks about I, um, John the Baptist heralding the call, being from Isaiah. At the end of the book, there's the suffering servant nature. And then, and with the unbelief of the Jews, there's this hardness of heart, and he quotes Isaiah. The theme of Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God is a major theme in Isaiah that the Jews did not recognize or understand. To us, we don't understand it either, but because we have the opposite issue. If you go to most evangelical churches in America and you talk to most people, what are they? Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Most all of us probably are Gentiles. The thought of Gentiles taking part in God's kingdom to us is not a big deal. It was a major deal to first century Jews and to first century Gentiles. And when we get to the book of Acts, we'll talk about that in even more detail. But part of the reference and the echo, the the reference to Isaiah is Mark is laying this groundwork for the idea that the Jews would reject their Messiah and the Gentiles would accept him, which is also something that we see time and again in the book of Mark, right? So even in the, the, the one, one of you made a comment, a question like, what is with the Jesus saying that it's not right to take the food and give it to the dogs? Remember in Mark 7, you're like, what is this? That just seems really harsh. Jesus is not making some racist statement here. What Jesus is saying, he, it, it's highlighting this fact that the Jews had the opportunity. They were at the table. Jesus, the Messiah, came to his own, to borrow the language of John. But when his own did not accept him, then he, then he and later on Paul in, in Acts and really the, the unfolding of the gospel ever since then has been to a Gentile audience who would accept it. 
And even in the Gospel of Mark, and even in the references to Isaiah early on, this groundwork is being laid to show that this was part of God's plan. The inclusion of the Gentiles was God's plan from the beginning, for which I personally am very grateful for. In the, the, we, I snuck another question in here on number three. How does Mark's endings affect or impact its message? How many of you got to the, end, to the end of the book of Mark and were a little bit confused? Anyone here? Okay. Um, it, it's a little strange. Multiple endings of the gospel of Mark. And what, what probably happened, we don't have time to go into a, a, a text criticism class, which is really what, what this is talking about is, why are there different endings and what happened? And, and a lot of it really goes back to the way that manuscripts were kept and scribal notes and additions would sometimes get imported into uh, the uh, manuscripts later on as, as text. And then there are other manuscripts and people um, will compare and contrast these and say, well, what, what was original to Mark? And then really with the ending of the Gospel of Mark, there are two questions. One is what was original and two, who added it later on? Was, was it Mark adding his own later, later on or was it someone else? If you notice in the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark, especially the, the very long one, uh, when they talk about things like um, they will, people will speak in different languages or different tongues and um, they will pick up snakes and it won't harm them. Do any of those stories sound familiar to anyone? What? It, it's the book of Acts. That's what's happening in Acts. They're picking up, they're, remember Paul, like he has the, uh, he's going to get in the fire and the snake bites him and he shakes it off um, at Pentecost where they're speaking in different tongues. It's almost as if in, at the end of the gospel of Mark, the abrupt ending in verse eight is unsatisfactory to some people. And so then they, what's added is reference to these events that took place in the book of Acts. The question that we have to ask for our purposes is, how do, do the various endings affect the meaning and message? And the short answer to it is really they don't. Incidentally, the ending to the book of Mark is one of the two or three most um, substantial textual difficulties in the New Testament. One of the other being the, the uh, story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Remember if you read, it's like some do or don't have this. And some people like to make a big deal out of the, the textual difficulties in the New Testament. So you'll read someone like uh, Bart Ehrman who says that on the basis of all of these things, the scripture can't be trustworthy. Or you'll hear, hear various things like that because we have all these manuscripts and so there are all these things. And, and there's like this, this hinting that some things were additional, intentionally pushed out of scripture. And so you may have heard this most popularly in uh, the Da Vinci Code. The, the book, The Da Vinci Code, is like the, the popularest level of this. In reality, like with this, the ending to the book of Mark, the short ending doesn't say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It shows with the, the book ends with the women at the tomb with an angel saying he is not here. Now, if you think about Mark's purpose, and his, his story is fast moving, right? And it's like, there's no birth narrative. It's almost like there's just a beeline to get Jesus to the cross, and he's crucified, buried, and rises again. 
and then there's this dead drop. Imagine you're hearing the story for the first time. What do you do? If you read Mark 16, 8, and you have these women have seen an angel, and that's the end. What is your first thought? What happens next? And Mark's goal is to invite you in to what happens next. Because it's not really just about what happens next in the story. It's about what happens next in your life and in my life. The women encountered an angel who said, he is not here, he is risen. And they have a choice to make. The woman's choice is, do I believe what the angel said? And do I find out more about this risen Jesus? Or do I walk away bewildered? And that's the choice that every person in history who has encountered the gospel message has. What do I do with Jesus? In fact, you know, and, and as church people were, were fond of saying it, but it's true. The single most important decision you will make in your entire life is what are you going to do with Jesus? And the gospel of Mark teased that up in such a perfect way with, with where it ends. If you add on the additional endings, though the, the further endings, it's still doing the same thing. Jesus rose. He appeared to these people. He appeared to the strange, uh, the, these uh, disciples in the country, right? Luke, uh, Luke's account of the road to Emmaus. It's still the same question. What are you going to do with Jesus? So that being said, the encouragement for us, the reason I have this question in here is twofold. The first one is to recognize, so that you begin to recognize that there are places in scripture where there are textual issues. Because one of the things that sometimes we've done, and I, I reference this at the very beginning of class, sometimes we tend to think that our translation of the Bible is like the only one. It's the Bible. And we need to recognize that there are textual issues and there are decisions that interpreters make when they translate and that there are, there are things that are going on in the footnotes of behind the text and recognizing that there, there are issues in the translation of scripture. However, it's also important, and this is the, the more important thing, not a single one of the manuscript issues in scripture affect its meaning and message in any way. In fact, one, uh, one text critic has, has made the point, if you adopted what is called the variant reading, the variant reading being the one that's not in the, in the normal text, if you adopted every single variant reading, so you took the long ending of, of Mark, you took the, the John passage, you took every outside reading from every text in existence, it would not affect the central meaning of scripture in the least, period. Textual criticism and these varying manuscripts do nothing other than support the truthfulness and the reliability of scripture. It's important for us to understand this because it's okay that our Bibles in the footnotes say which other manuscripts say this or other manuscripts have this. It doesn't mean our Bibles are not trustworthy. On the contrary, what it means is through thousands of years, scripture has been checked and checked and checked. And even in places where there are variations, 
not one of them affects any central core teaching, doctrine, theology of Scripture. The ending of Mark doesn't do that either. It still asks the same question at the end of the gospel, what are you going to do with Jesus? Now, number four, how might Mark's message of Jesus as king been received by his primarily Gentile audience? Now, think about this for a minute. In the um, Roman world, emperor worship was very common. And in fact, remember we, and um, so they, the, remember the Greeks would worship Zeus and we, we talked about uh, what led the, the Jewish rebellion that led to the, the Maccabean revolt and the, the, in the uh, intertestamental period was that the Greeks told them, we're gonna have you sacrifice uh, to Zeus in the temple. Well, part of Roman worship was the, the phrase, Caesar is Lord. Does that sound kind of familiar? Because what do we say? Jesus is Lord. Now we just throw it about like, well, Jesus is Lord. Like if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. To us, that's not a big deal. To a Roman citizen in the first century to say that Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not. It was countercultural. It was revolutionary. It was treason. It was a big deal to say Jesus is Lord. So when Mark is writing this to a Gentile audience, these are people familiar with, um, with Caesar worship. These are people familiar with, with Roman power systems. And Mark presents a suffering servant king who claims to be Lord instead of Caesar. Think of the audacity and think of the offense of the gospel. Because what kind of, well, yeah, I guess I might as well do this. What kind of a president do we want? A good one. <laughs> Strong. If you watch, if you watch the debates and you watch the, the, the campaign rhetoric. We want a strong president who won't take anything from Russia. We want a strong president who can control China. We want a strong, right? This is the rhetoric going on. Enter Jesus. Do we want a suffering servant president? See, it kind of catches us, doesn't it? It's a trick question <laughs> because ab yeah, ultimately, yes, we do. And what's really incredible is when you, when you really think through the, the political scene, it's amazing how really what we want is Jesus. It's incredible. What we want is Jesus, but we don't recognize the audacity of a servant, a suffering servant king. And neither did the first century Jews and neither did the first century Gentiles. And for a Gentile to have to say a crucified Jew is king, is Lord, not Caesar in Rome commanding all of the legions, but a man condemned as a criminal, crucified, and by all accounts having risen again. But remember, the, the, this audience, they didn't see him. 
They were not eyewitnesses. This was second generation Gentiles. The faith that it takes to throw off all of Roman imperialism and be willing to convert to Christianity at the cost of your life for a king who is a suffering servant. The folly of the gospel. It helps us understand a little more when we get into Corinthians and we read about the foolishness of the cross and the foolishness of, the, of Paul's message. See, we're so used to it that we don't see the folly in it. We don't see the, just the, the absurdity of a crucified king. Spoiler alert from the, the book of Revelation. The lion is a lamb who has been slain. That is nonsense. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a slaughtered lamb. And that's the gospel. And if we understand that, we understand the radical nature of who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, and who the early church said he was. See, we have to understand that because it helps us then when we move it to what does this mean for us today? So the first question, which we ask, you know, over and over again, knowing text or a doing text, it's both. Because Mark teaches you about Jesus. And then you have this drop-off cliffhanger. What are you going to do about who Jesus is? Because in our church and in our culture today, we've almost made it so that you can still somehow be respectable in the world as a follower of Jesus. In the first century, you didn't have that option. In 21st century America, I kind of think we don't have that option either. We just think we do. But as things progress more and more, the more serious we are about following after the suffering servant king, the more difficult it is to maintain respectability in the eyes of the world. Similarities and differences between the original audience. Notice as we read the New Testament, the similarities get bigger and the differences get smaller. There are still differences. We're 21st century Western Americans, but we're still faced with the same decision the women faced. What are we going to do with Jesus? Number three, how does Mark's presentation of the kingdom of God compare or contrast with modern conceptions? This is where I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I'll probably go ahead and do it anyway. We measure success in terms of numbers and budgets and bringing people in. And I mean, all of these things that, that really are not always, are not often that different than the way a, a secular business model does things. What was the conception of the kingdom of God in Mark? Jesus said it, is it Mark, Mark 10, 35? Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is not just nice words. That is the rallying cry of all who would come and take up their cross and follow Jesus. When I was younger, I, I used to think that um, the, the passages on the cost of discipleship, 
uh, foxes have holes and uh, birds have nests. The son of man has no place to, to lay his head. I used to think two things. That applied to people in the Middle Ages or the early followers of Jesus. And today, the only people that applies to is, does anyone have a guess? Who does that apply to? Everyone else. <laughs> I was missionaries or you know, the, the, those people, those special people that Jesus calls to, to do something. What I've learned, and, and the more I read through scripture, and even reading through Mark several times over the past few weeks, it has been reinforced in my mind that that is the standard call to follow Jesus. And what I came to realize is, I expect to be able to take up my cross without getting splinters. It's not gonna hurt. What I've come to realize is if following Jesus doesn't cost me and doesn't hurt, I'm probably not following him the way I should. Now, this is not to say that we need to be out looking for pain and suffering or that if you own a home or have a home or have a car or any of those things that that's inherently wrong. But it's very easy for us, whether as, as individuals or as Christian institutions, to fall into a way of measuring and defining success that if you peel, if you take the name Jesus off and you peel the cross off the wall, it doesn't look any different than what you would see in a business school or a secular university or any place else. And that is wrong. Mark clearly shows that if you are going to follow Jesus, you are going to be like him. And if you are going to be like Jesus, then you will suffer and serve. That is not an easy thing for wealthy, 21st century, comfortable Americans to handle. It's not easy for me because I don't like pain. I don't like to be uncomfortable. I like to know that I have that I have enough money in my budget to pay for things and that I can, you know, pay off my home and retire and do this and that, you know, like we have all of these things that we just, we think about. And even on the political scene, we vote for people that will protect those things that we value. You know, they always say people vote their pocketbook. If our driving force in life is to be comfortable and secure, we really have to reevaluate how well we're taking up our cross and following Jesus. The gospel of Mark is not an easy book to read. It's fast. It's exciting. We see Jesus doing all of these things. And then it's like at the end, you run into a brick wall. What are you going to do with Jesus? And this is not just a salvation message. It's not, what are you going to do with Jesus? I'm going to, I'm going to receive him, and then I'm, I've got my ticket to heaven and you know, all of this. What are you going to do about who Jesus is today and tomorrow and the next day? What am I going to do about who Jesus is? Because the nature of the kingdom of God is suffering and service. 
Next week, um, we're going to talk about, I'm, I'm kind of going to just jump ahead for just a second. With our reading for next week, we're going to learn another facet of the kingdom of God that becomes a very important um, partner to this. But as, we, as you read um, net for your homework for next week, I just want to remind you to keep Mark's conception of the kingdom of God squarely in your mind. Because the kingdom of God is not mega church, suburbia, America. The kingdom of God in Mark's gospel is forsaking everything, going to the ends of the earth, proclaiming a crucified king, a suffering servant who is Lord of all. So as we go through uh, the, the general tips for reading scripture, hopefully I've kind of summarized this. What does this mean to God's people back then in the book of Mark? What does this mean for us? Hopefully I've made you sufficiently uncomfortable. Um, I heard a joke, it was a British, uh, professor, a British scholar uh, years ago made the comment, he was talking about Paul, and he said, whenever I go and speak somewhere, they serve tea. Whenever Paul goes somewhere and speaks, they riot it. And sometimes I think if we don't make people uncomfortable, maybe we're not uh, presenting the message very well either. I know when I read Mark, it made me uncomfortable because what this means for me today is that my, my status quo is not good enough. Now, what that might mean for each of us can change, and it would vary from person to person. But we can't encounter Jesus and remain unchanged. So, the, uh, again, the two basic questions. The next uh, slide, uh, determine the author's original intent to his original audience. Remember with Mark, we said, what are you going to do with Jesus, the suffering servant king? What are you going to do? How do we today live in line with that? I will leave that to you to think about and pray about in the, the coming weeks. But we're tearing our attention now to the New Testament parables. You've already read some parables. Some of you actually had some really good questions on parables from, from the Gospel of Mark. One being, why did Jesus speak in parables? And we'll talk about that hopefully a little bit tonight. But before we do, we need to understand really what a parable is. Parables use common experiences to convey spiritual truth. You guys, this is, this is great to be able to talk with you guys about it because you are from the Missouri, Kansas, Midwest area, right? So you know farming. It's a whole lot harder to talk to people in Manhattan about parables in the Bible because they've never seen a farmer. But what happens is you are using everyday experiences, common experiences to convey spiritual truth. This is what Jesus did. So you can almost picture him sitting there, you know, and he's saying a farmer went to sow his seed. And maybe off on the horizon, there's a farmer out sowing the seed. This was something that he, that Jesus knew and his audience understood. So that you can, common experiences between the, the storyteller and the audience that conveys spiritual truth. Parables usually convey one central meaning or point. This is very important because do you remember when we talked um, early on about narrative? And we talked about how it's easy to allegorize. So with the story of David and Goliath, 
You have, well, David and Goliath is really about Jesus, who is the greater David, who defeats Satan, who is the greater Goliath, and that's the point of the story. That's not the point of the, sto of the story of David and Goliath. That's foreign to the text. Now, is it true that Jesus is greater than David? Yes. Is it true that Satan is greater than Goliath? Yes. Is it true that Jesus has defeated Satan? Yes. Is that what that text is teaching? No. With parables, we have to be careful that we don't assign too much meaning to each detail of the story. So uh, St. Augustine, great, great early church interpreter, had this entire list in the parable of the Good Samaritan of this this represents this, and this represents this, and this is the Holy Spirit, and this is Jesus, and, the, and, and it just goes on and on. And that was part of the interpretive style of his day, that there was a lot more allegorizing. But a parable is not trying to hide or teach these hidden truths that you have to dig really deep into them to understand. A parable is usually conveying one central point. So the parable of the Good Samaritan basically is telling in, you know, in the story, you are not good like you think you are. Because remember, the, the, the teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. He said, well, who's my neighbor? Who do I need to be kind to? And Jesus used a Samaritan who is the opposite of everything in the first century that was good. To, see, to us, good Samaritan sounds nice. We have good Samaritan laws. To a first century Jew, good Samaritan was an oxymoron. It was not, it, they couldn't fathom that. It told one central point. So we have to beware, as I said, beware of over-interpreting or allegorizing the parables. So they're not hidden. However, Parables demand spiritually sensitive hearers. Parables are told in such a way, and you probably picked this up as you read through the Gospel of Mark. They're told in such a way that it was clear that some people didn't get it. It was clear that other people really did get it. I don't remember if it was in the Gospel of, of Mark or if it might have been in um, John, where he tells, a, he tells a parable, and they're going to stone him. And you're reading the story, you're like, why are they so angry? They understood the point better than we did. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Spiritually sensitive hearers will understand what is being said and put it into practice. A lot of people thought they understood what Jesus meant and didn't. And one of the things that Jesus talks about in, in parables is that Parables are designed to both reveal and conceal the nature of the kingdom of God. It was revealed to people who were spiritually sensitive. And, and what's interesting is, who were the spiritually sensitive hearers in the New Testament? Who were the people that flocked to Jesus? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners... They're the ones who got it. Who went away angry every time Jesus spoke? The religious elite. 
they understood what Jesus was saying, but they didn't have spiritually sensitive ears to really understand. And it's incredible as we go through, as we go through the gospels and we recognize how divisive Jesus was. Part of it was because of the nature of parables. Because parables would reveal things to people who already were thinking in the right direction. Their hearts were working in the right direction. But people whose hearts were already against Jesus or people who were expecting Jesus to be this national hero didn't understand the parables. Incidentally, also when you read through, you know who else didn't get most of what Jesus said? His disciples. Do you notice that when you read through Mark, how many times his disciples say, his disciples were arguing about what, what does rising from the dead mean? And you're just like, how do you not get it? They didn't see it. Parables demand spiritually sensitive hearers. The point of the story, the point of the parable is often found in its intended response. Let me give you a little bit of an example here. One of the most famous parables in, in all of scripture is the parable of the prodigal son. The problem is, it is actually not the parable of the prodigal son. It is the parable of the jealous, unforgiving older brother. Because if you, if you read the story carefully, it starts in, in the beginning of, of the passage in Luke. There are three parables about a lost something, a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And it starts off with the Pharisees and the religious leaders are complaining that Jesus is welcoming and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus tells these stories. Who is the audience he's telling them to? The religious leaders. So when we go to the parable of the prodigal son, it's not about the son and his misfortune and his sin. And when we tell the story, you've probably seen stories like this, or you've heard stories where we dwell a great deal on the son and we tell stories about all of the sin that he must have gotten into. Because if he had his inheritance and he went off to the city and we focus on this, and then we talk about he was living with pigs and we talk about how bad it must be for a Jew to be willing to live with and feed pigs and how bad it must be to want to eat the food the pigs were eating, right? Have you heard this before? Where we just go deeper and deeper into the plight of the prodigal son. Then we go to the father, and the father who ran when he saw the son, he was waiting and he ran to the son. And we focus on how Jewish men never ran, right? So you've, heard, you've probably heard all of this before. And all of those statements are true. The problem is I have yet to hear a retelling of the parable of the prodigal son that focuses on the older brother. It's usually either on the prodigal or on the father. And you know why that is? Is because who, remember we read ourselves into the story and who are we in the story? How many of you would say, I've been the prodigal? Right? Yeah, we've been the prodigal. Or how many of you can see yourself now as the father? Maybe you have a wayward child or someone you know, and you're wanting them to come back and you're just waiting for them to come back to Jesus. 
How many of you would willingly say, I'm the older brother in the story? No, but we're not going to be the older brother. The Pharisees wouldn't have said that. The intended response of the parable of the prodigal son is that we would see that we are the older brother. Because the Pharisees, they thought they were righteous and they they said, why is Jesus eating with these sinners? And Jesus, the parable, parable, one main point. Now, part of the nature of the story is that he makes the prodigal son seem really dirty. Do you know why? Because surrounding him at the table were tax collectors and sinners and all of these horrible, dirty people. And he focuses on the father and the father's love because the father cares for the lost. But the point of the parable is that the religious leaders did not understand the nature of God's love. They were more concerned with their own righteousness because what is the, in, in the parable, what does the, the son say? All my life, I have slaved for you. I have never done anything wrong. Who in Jewish society claimed they never did anything wrong? Religious leaders. But when this son of yours comes, you welcome him. Jesus welcomes the sinners. The intended response, and this is true with many parables, as we understand, what is the intended response of the audience? The intended response for the, should be either, it's, it's either going to be shame or anger. Because when you're confronted with your sin, what are your two choices? I can either be ashamed of my sin and I can confess, or I can be angry and deny it. And that's exactly what happened with the religious leaders. But we have to be very careful when we read the the parables that we aren't focusing on a minor detail when Jesus is pointing out, this is the problem. And you see that time and time again. Most of Jesus' parables dealt with the rejection, the the Jews' rejection of the gospel and the acceptance of the Gentiles. Again, it's not something that tends to be a big deal to us. It was a huge deal to first century Jews that the Gentiles would be a part of the kingdom of God. So the parable of the tenants, remember where uh, Jesus tells the parable where they, uh, they say here, you know, here's the heir, you know, he, they, uh, the farmer says, I'm going to lend my field to you. You will produce its fruit and send me a portion back. And they don't. And then they send, so, so the, farm, the, the, the landowner sends the uh, people to collect and they beat some of them and they kill some. And then he says, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect my son. And they say, here's the heir, let's throw him out. And then Jesus asked the question, now what will that tenant owner do to those, what will the, the owner of the land do to those tenants? And the people answer, he'll throw, he'll throw them out and give the land to people who will produce its fruit. By their own words, they condemn themselves. 
That's how parables work. It is amazing when you, when you read through the, the, the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus' storytelling ability in these parables is amazing, absolutely incredible. In a very short story, he can, without actively saying anything, the people condemn themselves. The point of the story is often found in its intended response. Now, when it comes to parables, it's kind of as, as a subset of the Gospels, we talked about this last week, there are really two levels of intention. There's the original audience level, because Jesus is telling this parable to people at a given time, mostly Jewish. But then Mark picks up the story and tells the story and weaves it into his gospel narrative. So Mark might put a story in one place. Luke might put it somewhere else. Matthew might put it somewhere else. It's the same story, but it's accomplishing slightly different things in the gospel writer's uh, unfolding of the gospel. You remember last week, it was something that was a little bit confusing, so I, I talked about it a little bit and, and then just hoped that I <laughs> was clear. The way the gospel writer in, takes up the story is the most important thing. We can't get back to what did Jesus really say, where was Jesus really, and who was he talking to exactly, but we know, so for example, in the, in the gospel of Mark, Mark is taking these stories, these parables that highlight the rejection of the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. And he's telling them to a Gentile audience, intermixed with the story of Jesus, intermixed with several key Isaiah quotes all through. So what do all of those things together do to a Gentile audience? So again, this is talking specifically in Mark's gospel, his parables, the Isaiah quotes, and the, the story of Jesus all mixed through. And basically what they're doing is it's telling a Gentile audience that the kingdom of God is now available to you. And it's telling a church, right, in the first century that had Jewish, Jews and Gentiles together that the Gentiles are not second-rate citizens or accidents in the kingdom of God. This was God's intent, referenced in Isaiah. Jesus predicted it time and time again in the parables. So the original audience level for some of these parables is you Jews are rejecting your Messiah, specifically the religious elite. The gospel narrative level is saying you Gentiles are now full members in the kingdom of God because of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? So it's the same story. It doesn't change. And that's what I want to make sure I'm really clear on. It doesn't change where on the, the original, the story on the original level means X and the, the, uh, the, the gospel narrative level changes it to something totally different. It's the same basic meaning, but it plays out slightly differently because of the nature of the audience. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. That's probably the most difficult thing to understand is that when we're reading the story, because again, as, as, as uh, TV people, we're used to watching things live. 
We're used to seeing events as they unfold. So I'm watching the World Series and I watch it and I see, I mean, yeah, it might, it's like a two minute delay or something, but I mean, it's basically live. I mean, it's as it happens. Breaking news is as it happens. And so I tend to read scripture, assuming I'm reading scripture as it happens. I'm not reading scripture as it happens. Mark is telling the story of Jesus probably 30 years after it happened to a specific people with specific needs at a specific point in time. And the parables, which are a major function, they, they have a, serve a major function in the gospels, are doing the same thing. So that is the basically how the parables work. For your homework this week, we're going to get out a little bit early tonight. I hope that's okay with you. When a preacher or a teacher in church asks if it's okay for you to get out early and there's no response, <laughs> like, I, there are 66 books in here that I could talk about if you don't want to leave. <laughs> for your homework for this week, it's going to be shorter. I want you to read Matthew 13, which is a specific collection of Jesus' parables. Specifically, they are parables about the kingdom of God which is part of the reason why I want you to, to maintain Mark, you're thinking about Mark, in your reading in Matthew. Because the nature of the kingdom of God is the same, even though it has slightly different facets, it's the same in all the gospels. There is not a health and wealth gospel, I'm sorry. It's, it is suffering and service. But it's better than anything that this old world has to offer. You read Matthew 13, uh, the how to read the Bible book by book, 269 through 276 is the entire uh, section on the, the, the gospel of Matthew. I would encourage you to read the entire how to read the Bible book by book for Matthew because it kind of frames the slight differences on what Matthew's focus is versus what Mark's focus is, which you, you've had previously. Then I want you to answer the guiding questions on page 50 of the encounter manual. These are going to be much more specific questions because after I asked you to read 16 chapters last week. This week, I'm asking you to read one chapter. What I would really love for you to do is to read this chapter. Try to read it every day if you can. Maybe go back and read a little bit of Matthew 12 and then also read into 14 a little bit just to give you a little bit of extra context. Um, if you want to read or listen to the entire gospel of Matthew this week, that's great. I've actually found myself as, as I read the, the, or listened to the gospel of Mark several times over the past few weeks, I keep wanting to listen to it again. It's just really good. It is such a great story. Um, Reminded of the old hymn that said, you know, I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And it just seems like the more that I hear the story of Jesus, the more incredible it becomes to me. But if you have a chance to, to do that in um, Matthew 13, uh, if you have additional time, you can also read Luke 15 and 16, along with uh, the readings for the, uh, the gospel of Luke. Next week, we're going to focus a lot deeper on these specific parables and what Jesus is saying in those parables. So as you read this week, try to avoid 
over-interpreting or allegorizing or reading too much into them. I will tell you one thing really quickly before I forget. The first parable that you're going to read is the parable of the four soils or the parable of the sower. That parable is more allegorical in nature where different things represent something. But do you know how we know that? Because Jesus tells us, he points it out. Okay, remember this is one of the things that I've said, said before. I am not comfortable saying more than what scripture says. But Jesus points out what those things represent. And that will kind of frame, the, that, that parable will kind of frame the way you work through the rest of these parables. Additionally, just Caleb said it at the beginning, but I, I just want to, to echo it again. Please avail yourself this week of the opportunity to, to come and fast and pray as a church. We don't always understand how prayer works, but we know that it does. In that passage, it said, I urge, first of all, that, that prayers be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority. This is good and pleases God. When we pray, we are pleasing our heavenly father. So I encourage you to, to take advantage of, of that time this week as the church has set that aside. And I will see you guys next week when we will talk more deeply about parables and then the book of Acts. Thank you all for coming.